peace. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues. And thee. Bang, bang! Welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a romantic comedy or this week, a romantic tragedy. Featuring a love triangle and tell you why the protagonist or person who had to do the choosing made the wrong choice. I'm Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And this week, we are talking about Boz Lerman's 1996 film, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. And also, as a sidebar, <laughs> the 2011 animated film, Nomeo and Juliet. A classic. <laughs> sidebar. <laughs> This is the main event, Jen. Nomeo and Juliet is what we came here to talk about. I mean, I came here to talk about William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, but my co-hosts were insistent. And you know, I don't regret it because Nomeo and Juliet is a charming film. Dear listeners, I campaigned so hard to get them both to watch <laughs> Nomeo and Juliet because I have been a fan since seeing it three times in theaters in 2011, and I am still a fan of Nomeo and Juliet. I am fully on board. I came in wanting to talk about the Baz Luhrmann film, and then by the time I had seen Nomeo and Juliet, I was like, can this just be a Nomeo and Juliet podcast? now can we do a, one of those minute by minute podcasts except about Nomeo and Juliet and I am here to say we may do a special episode where we do just that but no today we are also going to talk about my man Boz or actually it would have sounded better if I said my boy Boz for alliteration you know mm. anyway I would redo that I know Samantha will not edit this out Samantha, would you like to give us a summary of both movies? Sure. I'm assuming that any of our listeners who have been through high school are familiar with the basic plot beats of the Romeo and Juliet story. So I'm just going to kind of give an overview of both adaptations. So as Jen mentioned, we're doing a double feature this week, the 2011 computer animated masterpiece, <laughs> Nomeo and Juliet, and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. So we all know the basic beats of the story, star-crossed lovers from feuding households who fall in love, but neither their romance nor indeed they themselves can survive the conflict. In the end, Juliet pretends to commit suicide. Romeo finds her asleep, kills himself, and then Juliet wakes up, finds Romeo actually dead, and then actually kills herself. Lovely. <laughs> and it's also one of the most important stories ever told. So Nomeo and Juliet gives that timeless story the kids movie treatment. So I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Nomeo and Juliet survive in the end and the feud is over and everyone dances and nobody dies. It sets the action between two gardens full of sentient garden gnomes who like to race lawnmowers. That's a real thing <laughs> that happens. <laughs> that's, that's an accurate distillation of the events of the film. So the havoc that they wreak on each other lawns gets blamed on each other's respective human property owners, thus perpetuating the endless feud. And I think one of the biggest differences between Nomeo and Juliet and the original is that a plastic, besides like everything, 
um, is that a plastic pink flamingo effectively takes the plot position of the priest, but instead of advising Juliet to go into a coma, he just tells them to love each other and try to resolve the feud. So this, that's Nomeo and Juliet. And then as a total sidebar, just, you know, a few minutes of discussion, we're going to be talking also about this little film, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet, which he's more closely to the original story, even using Shakespearean English. But it sets the action in what looks a lot like Venice Beach in the 1990s between warring mafia families. Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes play the lead. This is early Leo, lanky Leo, very skinny Leo, boyish Leo. Highlights include Baz Luhrmann making Mercutio more explicitly queer, Claire Danes' subtle hair and makeup, I think, and the soundtrack. Suffice it to say, this adaptation ends in the traditional way with the fake suicide, real suicide, real suicide, triple combo. Our other guy in both cases is going to be Paris, portrayed in Nomeo and Juliet as a nerdy plant-loving gnome, played by Stephen Merchant, and in Boz's adaptation by a dreamy-looking but not very smart Paul Rudd, who plays the governor's son. So let's discuss all of the ways in which Romeo and Juliet is the best Romeo and Juliet adaptation of all time. Two gardens, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil ceramic makes civil gnomes unclean. And that's a wrap. (laughs) Damn. A house divided in which one co-host of You Should See the Other Guy saw Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet at a formative age and will stand it forever, but also enjoyed the quaint charm of Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> tell, tell us about Boz Lerman before we disregard the existence of the film altogether. Because I knew you to all were going to try this. I knew it, and I will not let it happen. <laughs> tell us about how Boz's adaptation was formative for you. Well, Boz's adaptation was probably a bit formative for me because. <sighs> Samantha, how do I explain this to other people who don't know me? I am a very saturated person with a (laughs) short attention span, shall we say? (laughs) And Boz's adaptation perfectly expresses that. Sick soundtrack, wonderful costuming. The sets are incredible. This was the movie that... Actually, I don't think that this movie introduced me to Leonardo DiCaprio, who, frankly, I now despise and never was really a fan of, even as I loved this movie as a child. Anyway, mostly I think (laughs) that the soundtrack and the bright colors and the incredibly dramatic staging of everything with the original Shakespearean dialogue that I had been obsessed with since my best friend's mom took me to see a community theater production of Romeo and Juliet when I was in the fourth grade just blew my whole little mind. But really who I think we've got to give the credit for the best parts of Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet too is Harold Perrineau's Mercutio. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just, I love the ways in which they make Mercutio like gender fluid and, and sexually fluid and his outfit at the ball is incredible. This was Romeo plus Juliet 
truly an amazing movie. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you both, but this was my first time watching it (gasps) in full. I had seen clips of it. I had always avoided it because I am a broken person and I can't watch movies with sad endings. So I have just avoided it my whole life. But this week I had to watch it because of the podcast. And turns out it is my ideal movie, except for the sad ending. It was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. The intro, I was gooped and gagged. It was so good. I as soon as the the opening came on with the little TV and the news lady speaking in the old English, I was like, oh, 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 inject it. <laughs> I was a huge Moulin Rouge fan. And you're right, Jen. I yeah. feel like hanging out with you like the the human distillation of a Baz Luhrmann film, like hanging out with you feels a lot like the opening scene of Moulin Rouge where you and McGregor gets taken to the Moulin Rouge for the first time. It's like, that's what hanging out at your house for the first time feels like. It's You get introduced to all these colorful characters uh, and you're just imbued with warm, vibrant, vivacious energy. So I, I have questions that we can get to later about which came first, that aspect of your personality or the Boz Lerman film? Did it resonate with you? Did it spark something in you? Did you spark something in it somehow and inspire Boz Lerman <laughs> to make it? God, I hope to that. so. <laughs> but um, Moulin Rouge was hugely formative for me because I love music. I used to write music and a lot of like bad love songs, honestly. And so I loved the frenetic energy. But for some reason, I had avoided this one, maybe because I'm not the biggest Leo fan. And maybe because, you know, it's an it's an adaptation. And I, I think I was more curious about what Baz Luhrmann was doing with more original material. But it, it's it's got that great Baz Luhrmann flavor, which I think in 1996 was maybe a little overwhelming for critics, but it very much found an audience. And I'm glad that it did because it meant he got to make Moulin Rouge. I hate I hate this realization that out of the three of us, I am the biggest Leonardo DiCaprio fan. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a big one, but I am the biggest in this little pool. And I don't like it. Well, Sadie, you still are in his age range for dateability. (laughs) (laughs) You have a low bar to clear. My feelings about Leonardo DiCaprio are not very favorable. I I just... He feels kind of workmanlike as an actor. Like I, I think, I think he gets the job done, but there's no flair to it. There's no sense that it <laughs> seems to be a natural, effortless talent for him. And it seems like he mostly got cast and built a career on having a certain kind of look, which is on full display in this film, but maybe less so on his his thespian skills. However. <laughs> I will say in this film, he really, uh, he has proven in his life to be an excellent Romeo in that whatever is the next beautiful woman to come along, he is enamored with, you know? I mean, he sells that here and he looks perfect. And he and Claire Danes also look weirdly like twins, which I think favorably impacts the 
narcissistic, uh, instant love, uh, you know, a teen, very, very teenage nature of the whole story of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, just spot someone through a fish tank and and then you're instantly ready to die for them. Ah, uh, yeah. It was it was so good. I I think for my people who are attracted to Leonardo DiCaprio re- uh, listeners out there, Leo sexuals. This this I hate you. <laughs> I think that this movie is like right in the sweet spot. You know, like it's it's just before Titanic. It's after Basketball Diaries and Marvin's Room. It's right there. It's nestled in there. He's at peak attractiveness for me. And maybe that's just because he was 22 when this was filmed and I am 23, so there's there's that. It was good. I was into it. You know what makes me wince, though? They were initially thinking about casting Natalie Portman as Juliet. Yeah. She was 13 at the time (gasps) of filming. And they said, like, it didn't look right for her to be next to Leo. And so they went with Claire Danes, which, like, obviously do not have a 13-year-old in a... How old was he? 21, maybe, at the time? 22. Yeah. <laughs> and Claire Danes, let's let's list this up, because this is also going to come up in our discussion about the other guy. Claire Danes in this film I be- was 16 when this yeah. was filmed. So slightly older than 14-year-old Natalie Portman would have been. And she gives a very serious mien about her, you know, like because she's Claire Danes. But... Very much in keeping with the original play. Very much a teenager. Yeah. So I, 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 um, I can't remember if Samantha mentioned this, but Paul Rudd is our Paris Ooh. for mm-hmm. Romeo plus Juliet, and this was the same year that he was also in Clueless, which is the defining movie of 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 everyone's lives. So he was really racking it up that year. Do we know how old Paul Rudd was? By the way, looks the damn same. As he does now in 2020. Shocking to me. (laughs) And Sadie, I was concerned about this, as I am always concerned about the ages of the characters in these movies that we watch. So I looked it up. So when this movie was filmed, Claire Danes was 16, Leonardo DiCaprio was 22, and Paul Rudd would have been 26. Okay. Yeah. I like Jen's age report. We need like a musical stinger every time Jen swoops in with the ages. There's never really any like, there's no scene between Paris and Juliet in Romeo plus Juliet that's as, you know, sensual as the scenes that she has with Romeo. Absolutely not. But still, he's so, he's so cute. In, in this movie. So cute. Even more impressed with Claire Dane's acting ability, I think, given that she was 16 at the time, because she handles the Shakespearean English with more aplomb than Leonardo DiCaprio, I dare say. I agree. I agree. It felt more natural from her. It was, I, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that she was 16 the entire time because she was just so talented. And Leo's uh, accent, what kind of American accent does he have? It's like indiscernible to me. Sometimes he leans into it to make it Bostonian if he's in The Departed or stuff like that, but it doesn't really gel for me with the Shakespearean stuff. Like the characters who are talking in a more like street style, like feuding with each other, like the shake, one of the genius 
you know, turns of this movie, I think, is that the Shakespearean dialogue actually like works really well in in that format. But mm-hmm. for Leo's like, yeah, vaguely Bostonian uh, <laughs> dialect, it's not really working for me. Because I don't think that he really ever fully leans into the lilt of the dialogue the way that some of the other actors do. And so it just feels like he's like, delivering straight lines but you kind of have to like go with the rhythm of of Shakespeare to like make it work in this instance that is true and I think that the Shakespearean especially the brawling scenes between the Montague and the Capulet boys you know who are out with their their swords and daggers that are firearms on the street and on the beach. Those scenes work so well because they they sell the dialogue very well with their bodies and their movement and the way they deliver it comes out really great. Actually, when I was watching this movie again, it's been a while, I think, since I've inserted a, my partner walked into the room, but this time he's obsessed with this movie. So he was there the whole time. But he did make a comment in the part where Benvolio and... Romeo are playing pool, how badly outacted Leo was by the other actors in that scene. Yeah. They just seemed very natural with it, with the dialogue where mm, he might not have so much. (laughs) I think most striking in the um, a pox on both your houses scene where Harold Perrineau is like going off like magnificent performance and Leo is just like a dead weight on that that whole scene (laughs) bless his heart (laughs) god I I think that Leo was very well suited for the more quiet moments of Romeo plus Juliet but he just couldn't he just couldn't do the the pageantry the camp that some of the others could do in the more loud sweeping scenes so you're saying when leonardo dicaprio is on screen and he doesn't talk it's better than when he's on screen (laughs) (laughs) and he does talk i mean that fish tank scene where they just they flirt by looking at each other and responding and looking again that yeah sadie i'm with that is really good it's good and they're they're falling into the pool make out and then where she has to disguise him from the guards and then they make out again in the pool like also really good have either of you seen hot fuzz yes i have not okay (laughs) because this is what leo's performance reminds me of not quite as egregious as this but in hot fuzz a london policeman goes to a small town in england and sees a community theater production of romeo and juliet that's just like (laughs) terribly acted and they're just chewing up the shakespearean english in this really egregious way i think she has like a cockney accent or something and she's like poison i'll kiss thy lips aptly some poison doth yeah hang on them poison i'll kiss thy lips aptly some poison doth yeah hang on them and and, uh that's what leo sounds like to me whenever he talks there's some ineffable quality that i Sorry, I'm harping on it, but it really bothered me. <laughs> Harp on he, Leo, Samantha. You drag him. This is how I feel about him in a lot of movies. He has the look. Physically, his acting is like there. The body language is there. But like he opens his mouth and the lines come out and they just flop around like so many dead fish <laughs> on the pavement in front of him. 
Can we just talk about Harold Perrineau for a moment? This was my introduction to this man as an actor, and he has my allegiance forever afterward. Incredible performance, incredible styling, incredible costuming. To me, this was like the Mercutio show. Like I was, <laughs> I was, I liked the fish tank scenes and in some of the like little chemistry moments. But other than that, I was like, when is Mercutio coming back? I know he's not long for this world, but like I want him on my screen constantly. Uh, on on rewatch, I was a, I did check out a little bit after his death because he is just very vibrant and magnetic and an interesting because Mercutio, right, as a character to all of our listeners who know the story of the Capulets versus the Montagues and when uh, basically everybody is on a side, right, in this movie, but not Mercutio. He's just their friend. And I don't think that I got that. Like, e- like as a kid, seeing it in my community theater production, which was probably better acted than that of Hot Fuzz. But I was sort of like, who is this guy? What not everybody on a team? Why is he the... And the way that Harold Perrineau played this was very obviously like, oh, of course everybody fucking loves this guy. Everybody wants him to be at their party. and and he's great he is great and then he knew that tibble is obviously trouble tibble was going to kill fucking little soft baby romeo and mercutio was about to handle that problem and that's what gets me in this because romeo stops mercutio from taking tibble out and then mercutio so unfairly takes the wound for Romeo and so justifiably puts a pox on both their houses afterwards. You know, I guess I had seen, I had seen the play before I had read the story, but Harold Perrineau was the one who made me understand the fucking bullshit that happened to Mercutio. Yeah. I, I, he's no respecter of boundaries. And I think that's like, that's what makes it so neat that they leaned into the queerness of the character and the subtext is this is a person who's just like crossing boundaries all over the place, very fluid, not really interested in the feud so much, but has a deep loyalty to Romeo. And gosh, it was fun to see their dynamic. Yeah. Maybe Leo and Harold Perrineau had had as much chemistry as Leo and Claire Danes in their scenes together. <laughs> Harold Perrineau has so much chemistry with everyone. <laughs> yeah, you, I think you it's, could put him on. Oh, sorry. Oh no, I was going to say I think it. I, Liz, I was going to talk about Nomeo and Juliet, so you can please continue. With oh, what we'll you're get saying. there. We will get. There. I was going to. I was going to draw a parallel, which is that is there. Unless the brace yourselves, people who have not seen Nomeo and Juliet, but is the pink flamingo supposed to be Mercutio? Because I don't think that there's a Mercutio equivalent in Nomeo and Juliet because his little gnome buddy is Benvolio. Romeo has some little lackey. That's Benvolio because he calls uh, him Benny. Yeah, they just get rid of Mercutio altogether. It seems like in in what is a, a dramatic streamlining of the events of Romeo and Juliet. I guess they because did. they can't have. A little guy die. Wait, they did have Mercutio? No, they did oh, not. Okay. I actually, because so today, this was my co-host's first full viewing of William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. 
<laughs> and this episode also marks my first viewing of Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> I love you, Sadie. And <laughs> I love you too, I, <laughs> When I was looking up something, I, when I was actually trying distressedly to find out if the lawn gnomes died in the end, <laughs> I came across... <laughs> An interview with James McAvoy in which he talked about how some of the Mercutio attitude was folded into Nomeo's character to carry it over because they Ah. didn't want to do the traumatic death scene. But I feel like a little bit of the, yeah, they tried to, yeah, put that humor between, because clearly our flamingo, our lawn flamingo, uh, stone feather was, he, he <laughs> feather was, stone, I feather stone, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, feather stone. No offense. I know you will forgive me. Your plastic skin is very tough. <laughs> Featherstone <laughs> was a bit of a Friar Lawrence stand-in, but also uh-huh. a bit of a Mercutio stand. Also a, mm-hmm. and there was no Rosaline either in Nomeo and Juliet. Yeah, it was more just a straight love story. That's interesting. Now that you mention it, that that they tried to fold the elements of Mercutio in with Romeo, that. Maybe is why I find the Nomeo and Juliet Nomeo, Romeo, I don't know. Um, That's why I find him more enjoyable to watch because he's not so like sad, forlorn, dramatic. He has that kind of upbeat Mercutio flavoring to him. Well, they kind of changed actually the entire narrative in Nomeo and Juliet in a way that is entirely appropriate for children and more fun to watch. But the thing is, in Romeo and Juliet, it's an inextricable aspect of the character that Romeo is a fuckboy. It's established at the beginning that Romeo is completely in love with this character, Rosaline, that he is mooning over and can't be bothered to go out and do anything with his boys because he's trying to get this girl to fuck him and then she won't marry him so he's all despondent and then and I guess that's a part of the why it's all a tragedy you know because it's not that Romeo and Juliet have such a once in a lifetime or such a great and enormous love that's more than anything that's the tragedy it's that really they're like super horny teenagers who feel a super bond with each other and it pops off, but their families are so shitty about it that it ends in, uh, you know, multiple deaths. <laughs> and because Romeo immediately forgets about Rosalind at the instant he sees Juliet, it's like, whatever. Anyway, Nomeo, as portrayed by James McAvoy, on the other hand, is first of all, Sadie, I waited to say this to you on the podcast. <laughs> My God. James McAvoy can somehow be sexually attracted <laughs> as a oh, garden no. gnome. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, Jen. You're right. <laughs> you had to say it. Are we going to talk about which garden gnome is more fuckable? <laughs> is that what we've been reduced oh, wow. to? Mm, I mean, well, gnome, <laughs> yeah, and gnome, and the answer I guess. Is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but Nomeo was never an established fuckboy as Romeo is. There's no dithering to his character. He is just a a charismatic and handsomely voiced character throughout. 
I think like it's really interesting that like the kids movie fits it of course more into kind of a happy rom-com mold where the characters are a little more self-actualized at the start and they have the meet cute and then the conflict and then the resolution and the happily ever after and Honestly, this is the only point I'll give to Baz's adaptation over Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> I, I like that it, it sticks more closely to opening on a Romeo who's already hopelessly in love mm-hmm. because it's, it's more interesting dramatically to watch. I guess what I'm trying to say is William Shakespeare might have had more talent at plot structure than the writers of Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> so... So before we get into the love triangle, which is where I want to, I want to listen to Jen pitch us why Paris is the better option. I have to ask you, Samantha, what you thought Romeo and Juliet was going to be going in and then why you loved it so much, because I love that you love it more than I can express. I'm sorry. I want to hear this too, but I need to emphasize for our listeners, Samantha loves this. Like I liked the movie. But Samantha said, I believe that I'm quoting this correctly, if Harold Perrineau's Mercutio were in Nomeo and Juliet, it would be a perfect movie. Oh, absolutely. Or take the flamingo from Nomeo and Juliet and make it a computer (laughs) animated character in the Baz Luhrmann film. And then both would be perfect films. I think they each need to trade a character to the other to achieve perfection. Good point. Um, Like get rid of uh, Balthazar and make him be a lawn flamingo. (laughs) And it would be perfect yes (laughs) and the lawn flamingo would honestly fit into like 90s venice beach it works for me but i was expecting to kind of have to trudge through nomeo and juliet i have somehow because my wife likes you know animated computer animated kids movies is like comfort food i'm dragging her on this podcast but i've i've had to sit through a fair number of less than enjoyable animated kids movies and i was expecting to have to kind of slog through this one but i find it such a strange and strangely compelling cultural artifact some of the greatest talents in like <laughs> pop culture are in this movie dolly parton is in it oh yeah <laughs> elton John provides the music, James McAvoy, Emily Blunt, Sir Michael Caine, and Sir Patrick Stewart. We've got, you know, bona fide lords and ladies up in this joint. (laughs) It just completely took me by surprise. But I guess more to Sadie's point, what I found so interesting about it was the physicality of these gnomes who have these (laughs) immensely fragile but very dense terracotta bodies and yet their favorite activity is lawnmower racing which is very high risk if you have a terracotta frame so (laughs) i found that aspect of the film like so suspenseful that they're all like a a two foot fall above the ground away from shattering. And yet they're doing all of these acrobatics and, and high risk drag racing down the alleyway. And I could not take my eyes off of it. You know, 
Samantha, I think that this dual viewing actually enhanced my viewing of William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, which obviously I've already seen and enjoyed before. But these little gnomes casual disregard of their body's mortality while they are enjoying themselves. And it made it, I was like, because of course, at first, I think I even, I, I texted you guys in the group chat, like, they are like, what are the rules? What breaks them? You know, I was really nervous because <laughs> of the noise of all their little clanking bodies. Oh, yes, the Foley work. Incredible. <sighs> so good. <laughs> But it brought it home to me that what are these also, again, in Boz Lerman's version? Are our bodies that much sturdier? What are these little motherfuckers doing running around waving these guns in each other's faces and acting like they're going to shoot each other? And like, we are also not very structurally sound creatures, much like the garden gnomes. <laughs> How Shakespearean. We are all easily broken. Yeah, I think about this sometimes. As mentioned previously on the podcast, I think in order to denigrate a film that we watched that I can't remember, I've had open heart surgery. And so I think a lot about how our bodies are just weird little like squishy things that are like one b- knock on the head away from like being over. And that is wild to me. And I'm glad that Nomeo and Juliet, Jen, made you contemplate the <laughs> fragility of corporeality like it did samantha what a thing it is to be in a body you know you definitely made the open heart surgery analogy in the kissing booth episode and i have not oh, stopped yeah. thinking about it <laughs> since the kissing booth episode <laughs> oh yeah And I felt so terrible, Samantha, on Listen Back, because then I immediately went off into some bullshit, like, of, you know, (laughs) dudes saying shit about my ass, like, right after that. And I was like, damn, I'm sorry. Samantha and I have been friends for a long time. Samantha's heart surgery was not new to me. Samantha, I feel really badly for hijacking that statement. It does not need to be treated with any kind of sanctitude, I assure you. Yeah, I, um, speaking of the last episode, regret that I didn't inform you that I escaped from the time loop in the Groundhog Day episode. I don't I don't feel like we ever we ever took a, a few seconds to well, acknowledge that wow, I'm now we free. Did. It, it, did we? <laughs> it was a non event for Jen and I, so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just another Wednesday, you know. <laughs> Apparently the the episode was good enough. The audio for me was a little echoey because I was in a bathroom, but it's it's at least one of our listeners' favorite episodes. So I think we did something right and I was allowed <laughs> to proceed to watch the kissing booth. And let me tell you, that was not the first thing I wanted to do after escaping 10,000 days of recording an episode about Groundhog Day. May I just say for a moment, guys, we have not only escaped that time loop. Well, we did watch another like terrible movie last week, but- this week, we watched two really good movies. That is a something that I think we should note on this a podcast. A breath of fresh air. Enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> okay. Sadie, I have one more thing to say about yes, the fragility please. of the gnome bodies, and then we can proceed. 
exactly. <laughs> Just talk as long as you want. <laughs> so, so the scene where Nomeo and um, Juliet, how could I forget her name? <laughs> She seems like she should have a gnome name yeah. too, right? Like yeah. Nuliet. I don't know. Like <laughs> Nomeo and, and Nomeo. Yeah. They meet on the top of an abandoned greenhouse where they're both trying to pick the same orchid. I was terrified. They they make eyes over the orchid and then they engage in this dangerous but erotic acrobatic dance where they like knock each other off the greenhouse so that the other would plummet and shatter on the ground below. And yet they keep on catching on to various railings or wires. And it's presented as this like whimsical moment of early love flirtation. And my breath was held the entire time I was on the edge of my yes. fucking seat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very heady choreography. Like it, it's such an enthralling scene. <laughs> like if the Bath and Body Works fragrance moonlight path were were a scene, it would be this scene. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wait, wait, hold uh, up a second. Sidebar. <clears throat> Okay, Samantha, did you ever have a Bath and Body Works phase? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Sadie, you? Of course. Okay, what what's everybody's flavor now? We must disclose now on the podcast. What is your scent from Bath and Body Works? Oh, gosh, what's the pink one with the, like, blossom? It's some kind of, like, you know, Kyoto-inspired look or name. Oh, Japanese cherry um, blossom? Yes, yep. uh-huh. Ha-ha. <laughs> what was yours, Jen? Is that... Girl, I'm old school. I was a cucumber melon. Wow. Cucumber <laughs> before it was cool. Until I put myself off of it by spraying my gym bag with it too much until now I associate it with the smell of sweaty feet. Sadie! <laughs> mine, mine is a tie between Moonlight Path and Lemon Vanilla, which I use like exclusively for two years. Yeah. I loved this segue. <laughs> the moonlight path analogy is perfect it felt like like that scene should have given the movie an r rating it was like something (laughs) out of basic instinct or something because like the stakes are just as high they might as well be like suffocating each other or like engaging in some kind of like bdsm (laughs) play in bed or something because the each of their actions could kill the other at any moment and yet they're like swooning over each other the whole time so like seemingly casually and so just the flirtation popping effortlessly off of their lips and wow okay then this was the moment y'all i was sold on nomeo and juliet i was like all right i'm gonna watch it for you guys good lord like straight up samantha said it first so i am just seconding that it was erotic (laughs) Sadie. you've made (laughs) Converts of us both, we both now understand the complex eroticism of Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> the thrill, you, the thrill of <laughs> of of not only forcing you both to watch it, but also you both enjoying it unparalleled. I. <laughs> 
I loved it. This was a great week. And also because I got to watch Romeo plus Juliet for the first time. And it was great. Hell yeah. Which, so Jen, (laughs) the reason why we watched Romeo plus Juliet is because you were really wanting to watch it and you wanted to talk about how Paris is the right choice. So I would love for you to state your case. I see you the floor. mm, Well, I don't know if I would say that is an entirely accurate representation, Sadie. I did really want to watch this movie. I don't know if... uh, Anyway, no, I'm arguing for Paris now. I'm not going to undercut my own argument. So, in original Romeo and Juliet, Paris is a terrible argument, right? Because... He's some fucking old dude Juliet has never even met before and like, what the fuck ever, you know? But in Baz Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, Paris is played as Dave Paris by Paul Rudd, who seems kind of dim, but also very charming and obviously very handsome. And I think that again here, his problem was a case of bad timing. If Juliet hadn't been wandering around the bathroom fish tanks like 10 minutes before and run into Romeo, she might have run into Paul Rudd Paris and been like, hey here we go. Here's our dance. This is on. Things are great. We're a good match. It's really only because Leonardo DiCaprio inserted himself into the scene and made out with her immediately before she got to hang out with Paris that it was a problem. My case for Paul Rudd is six words. Paul Rudd in an astronaut suit. That is all. (laughs) And that is a great case, Samantha. Because I've watched this movie a number of times now. (laughs) This feels so strange. (laughs) Usually... Usually you guys are the ones who have watched the movies before. This time oh, it's the me. Tables have I have the power. His little, his awkward dancing. He's trying so hard to do it right when, you know, when Juliet first comes into the scene. And when you first watch this movie, you never care about that because you're like, no, don't leave Romeo in the bathroom fish tanks. But he's just out there being adorable. And I paid attention to him this time again. And aside from the fact <clears throat> that both Romeo and Paris are enormously too old for this child that is being discussed in this movie, which we must acknowledge, and then now we're going to discard for narrative purposes. Oh, sorry, Juliet and self. Paris is presented in his limited screen time as a very courteous and generous person. Throughout, When he's talking about the plans for the wedding and whatnot, he makes it clear, Paul Rudd Paris, that he wants Juliet to be on board and comfortable with everything. He is no part of forcing the engagement at the end, which comes entirely from her father. And then there's a whole scene that very much shows why Juliet's mother is complicit in forcing this on her because she's an abused woman and is assuming her daughter is going to move into the same sort of system, but we'll have a better husband with this man. It's just a lot of really sad stuff that, again, might flash by the screen very quickly in bright colors because this was a Boz Lerman feature, but it's all there if you watch it again about 13 times. <sighs> and then Paris's grief when Juliet dies, you know? He's, he's just presented as a very innocent and genuine person. I hope that the astronaut suit wasn't a costume. I hope that... <laughs> 
Paul Rudd's <laughs> Paris just likes to wear astronaut suits. Sadie, do, do you feel like you can be swayed by Paul Rudd's Paris? What I found really interesting about him is like, if we had not been watching it for the purposes of this podcast, I probably would not have paid any attention to him because he's such a blank canvas in Romeo plus Juliet, but that's what's kind of great about him. Like, there's nothing wrong about him. He's just, you know, a, some other guy came in at the wrong time. Like, he seems like a genuinely really nice person. I worry about if Juliet ended up with him, would he have been able to ever stand up for her against her dad? Because he seems to be like super in her dad's pocket, which is kind of why her dad wants her to marry him. But he, I mean, he seems like a really nice guy. Like he's trying really hard. He brings her, he has like a bouquet, I think at one point that he's trying to give to her. He, he seems like he's trying really hard and he's trying to go about things in like the, in the respectful channels, you know, getting to know the fam, all that stuff. So I, I liked, I liked him a lot. I thought he was cute. I like that scene at the costume party where he's wearing the astronaut suit I'm basically anytime <laughs> the mic goes to me, I am going to say the words astronaut suit. I can't stop now. It has become a compulsion astronaut suit. And Leo and Claire are like flirting around a column. And Paul Rudd is just like, hey, look at the show. Like, isn't this cool? <laughs> it reminded me of his character in Parks and Recreation, the like dim-witted politician yes. who's also, I believe, like the son of someone very powerful. So yeah. Paul Rudd, great at playing not very bright sons of powerful <laughs> men. <laughs> I, I was watching this with one of my very dear friends who she loves this movie a lot. But throughout it, we just kept making this joke that like Paul Rudd didn't know that they were filming. Like he just thought that it was like a <laughs> <Yes>. costume party. <laughs> and like, he actually just like, as a person, he is Bobby Newport. Like he just thought he was having a fun time with Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio. He's <laughs> just, just like, I was Paris. Cool. <laughs> Great. Send me the residual check, I guess, but cool. <laughs> Dude, I buy it. That was my my big my only argument I could come up with against Paul Rudd's portrayal of Paris is that Dave Paris of this movie would basically be Bobby Newport of Parks and Rec. So he's a real dimwit you would be marrying who is related to power. However, he did look super hot in that astronaut suit. I think astronaut suit that it's important. I'll make the case for him over Romeo just at least in this portrayal, because I think when you feel as deeply and you have as tortured a soul as Juliet does, I think in real life, sometimes it's a good idea to be with someone who can just let things glance off the surface. You know, I think two deep feeling tortured souls together in love can often end in circumstances not quite as tragic, but approaching the tragedy of the ending of Romeo and Juliet. It's just too much emotion in one relationship and let Juliet brood and make her art and just have her, her dumb Bobby Newport husband there <laughs> to like take her mind off things. I think it'll be a, a better foundation for long-term success. I agree. Not that Juliet has a long-term, but she could have. Like, if she married Paris, she 
comes out of her room after, you know, whatever, 72 hours of angsty deliberation and art making. And Paul Rudd's Dave Paris is like, oh, hey, babe, I brought you some crackers. Like, do do you feel all right? Oh, (laughs) you know, and sometimes on this podcast, we have had to turn to some character assassination of the choice. What is it assassination in this point when it is laid so clearly before us that Romeo is fully in love with some other chick immediately before he meets Juliet to the point that after he meets, makes out with, and marries Juliet, he runs into his bros, including Mercutio, on the beach the next day, and they still think that his whole ish is about the previous girl, Rosaline. Yeah, that's not a good sign. <laughs> I, f- I feel like if the whole coma escape to a different town plan had worked out, Romeo and Juliet too would have opened with Romeo in love with some other girl and the tragic circumstances would be that he's already gotten married to Juliet. Yeah. Oh, Juliet turned out to be a drag. Like she wanted me to be faithful and stuff, man. And I'm just (laughs) deeper than that. Like that that's Romeo's character. (laughs) Well, that just made me think of something that I wanted to like talk about, which is this play is, it's certainly not like a, an actual romance because they know each other, what, like a week, you know? And then all this stuff happens and they really don't love each other. You guys, you know what I'm talking about. So like, why is it that Romeo and Juliet is one of the most adapted plays in the world? Like, why is it like the most well-known play? Because I was doing some research, fun little facts for you. And there are a lot of Romeo and Juliet adaptations that you might not have even realized were Romeo and Juliet adaptations. The first two kind of easy hitters, which is the first one is Warm Bodies, which is that 2013 zombie rom-com with Teresa Palmer and Nicholas Holt. It's so good. I also, yeah, I like it too. The second one, Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. And then what? the third one, <laughs> Camp Rock 2, The Final Jam, is also listed on Wikipedia as a Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it so fascinating that everyone knows the story like almost like the back of their hand. Why? It's forbidden love and tragic love rolled into one. And I think maybe one of the most important dramatic works to capture that feeling of just being hopelessly in love with someone off of some instantaneous connection. Like, like I'm not necessarily rooting for their love in Romeo and Juliet. I know some people engage with the play in that way and they like to imagine like, what if they had, you know, made it off together or whatever. That is me. But for me, <laughs> that is me. It's, a, it's about, and you know, I've gotten into a fair number of relationships this way before meeting my current person, that feeling where you like meet someone and you have some moment with them and you're like, oh my God, I have to be with them. I want to like drink them like a glass of lemonade. Like I just need to be around them. And Romeo and Juliet is about that that feeling, I think, and about what happens when two people both have that feeling and can't act on it for whatever reason. Everything you just said was boom, so spot on. 
But I think that this is such a teenage play. And actually, I, I was seeing a friend who is a teacher of eighth graders talking about teaching this play to his eighth graders recently. But it's such a teenage feeling, though, that you have these enormous, overwhelming feelings, this true love and this uh, conviction that you must be with this person and do this. But you have parental stoppage, mm. you know, like you have you are under the control of uh, literally parents in this case, you know, but that that's why it feels so much that way, I guess. It's not it's not even a fuck the man. It's a fuck you parents because <laughs> you're not out from under their thumb yet, you know, in the scope of this play. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet, I think, preserves the fuck you parentsness of Romeo and Juliet, but. But I think I think I don't think they're teenage gnomes. I don't either. I think they're like a little older, and that they should be out from under their parents' green thumbs. But <laughs> they both have very controlling parents. I think those are like. Say the age gnomes, for the record, <laughs> is how I read them. I would agree. Because, I mean, he has a whole ass beard, and it's white. Yeah, yeah and the Paris, yeah, the Paris in Romeo and Juliet is, yeah, white bearded. I know you both want to fuck James McAvoy as a garden gnome, which is not a... <laughs> Which is not a clause I ever pictured myself saying when we started this podcast, and yet here we are. But does that obscure your ability to make a case for Stephen Merchant's Paris in Romeo and Juliet? It is he's not. He's kind of like a non, because he's immediately attracted to the toad, like full stop. Yeah. And okay, wait, let me make my case first, Sadie, because I feel I, I have the same case as you, but also, as Samantha said, Clearly, we both want to fuck James McAvoy as a garden gnome. So yes, yes, yes. that Go aside, ahead. let me say, I believe that Paris in Nomeo and Juliet also just had a case of bad timing. He got brought up right after she had had Juliet the gnome had had this incredible, what we discussed at however much length before. I wasn't watching the minutes go by, but this wild death defying erotic flirtation with Nomeo where they were flipping one another on loose panels of an abandoned greenhouse and almost dying and then rescuing each other while trading a rare flower and incredible banter the entire time. So Juliet the gnome has this uppermost in her mind and then she meets Paris the gnome who she gets set up with by her dad who he was he was cute he looked like a perfectly respectable gnome he had a nice voice he brought her an incredible gift he seemed like actually like the kind of cute nerd that probably would be good to have like a long lasting marriage with you know and i think that her juliet the gnome's reaction to gnome paris may have been somewhat different if she had not just explored the outer limits of mortality with Nomeo. <laughs> it's some Hellraiser shit that they do in that <laughs> greenhouse. But no, I agree. I think Paris in Nomeo and Juliet suffers from, you know, when someone tries to set you up with someone in like, pre-married life for both of us, Jen, but they, they essentially are like, oh, come and you'll meet this person and they'll like you. And you show up and you feel immense pressure to be your most 
charming, most interesting version of yourself. I feel like Paris in in Romeo and Juliet is kind of tasked with that. He has like a few minutes to impress to to impress Juliet, and he's like, "Here's some plant knowledge, and also I'm gonna try to sing, I guess." And the toad will see me as Elton John, even though my singing is terrible. But I <laughs> I relate to that a little bit. Maybe if Paris had more than five minutes to make an impression, he'd do better. He has no idea that this guard gnome bee has literally been backflipping across a greenhouse with another guard gnome the previous night. And he is bringing good game. Like, I would be impressed if I were a garden gnome and a cute, bespectacled other garden gnome brought me a beautiful like plant hybrid he had created and sang me an Elton John song so yeah I'm really glad that they gave him at least the that that our frog girl Nanette was impressed with him because I hope he gets love somewhere because he fucking deserves it he just arrived too late to the party after Nomeo was his only sin he also just looked so old that's all I have to say. <laughs> well, I think that's just garden gnomes. That's except that's Nomeo, true. weirdly. I don't know. Because he was made to look appealing to a younger audience. And us. <laughs> that was his character assassination, was the white beard. That was that was them going out of their way aesthetically to make him less appealing because they didn't want us to fall prey to Stephen Merchant's charming stammering. I think it was a it was a wild choice for them to have all of the garden gnome men including Nomeo, the the object of Juliet's affection <laughs> all have white beards. That seems like a wild choice for a children's movie, but I respect it and it makes me like it more, dare I say. So do they reproduce <laughs> like how do they die assume maybe a lot of lawnmower accidents but then tybalt gets in one and they just tape him back together and he's in the dance compilation at the end so if only if only they could have done that with john like tybalt (laughs) (laughs) but he looks so fab and those heels when he strikes out the cigarette at the beginning i was very very attracted to john leguizamo in (laughs) romeo plus juliet (laughs) i have to say it that might be an 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 unpopular opinion but god no i don't think that's an unpopular opinion i think we are all on board tape John Leguizamo back and bring him back as the happy ending of Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> I'm usually the one to invoke horror movies on this podcast, but that is horrific to have a like, reconstructed Frankenstein John Leguizamo show up in the end credits of Romeo. Oh my God. I mean, it works for, for ceramic Tybalt and Nomeo and Juliet. That's what I'm saying. I think it's it's, you know, Romeo and Juliet reminds me of another animated movie, Boss Baby. Oh. If, I, if I spend too long thinking about the existential questions that it raises about like the nature of existence, it shuts my brain down and I feel like I need to fall asleep. <laughs>
Oh my God. Okay, guys, first of all, I must say, I just need us all to realize when I looked at the cast list to make sure that that was James McAvoy's voice that I was hearing as Nomeo, I learned that Jason Statham is Tybalt in Nomeo and Juliet. Which was an interesting feeling. Like every single voice actor in Nomeo and Juliet is like an international star. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and a Hulk Hogan does the voice of the Terraferminator lawnmower. (laughs) Macho Man Randy Savage, RIP, but yeah, Hulk Hogan handled that quite quite <laughs> adequately <laughs> you losing the war in your garden well brother maybe it's time for a secret weapon and he delivers my favorite line of the movie which is when mrs montague or mrs capulet or i can't remember which one she is puts a mrs. Kit- blueberry yes she puts a kitten lawnmower in her online shopping cart and when she does a small sound effect plays like meow and then when she, when one of the gnomes mischievously puts the terraferminator uh, lawnmower in the shopping cart it's hulk hogan going meow <laughs> <laughs> it wrecked me that it was gonna be because I was expecting, you know, some like really masculine like sound cue for the lawnmower going in the cart, but apparently <laughs> meow is just the universal noise for you put the lawnmower in the cart, and the tone changes depending on the kind of lawnmower it is. I my. F- In case anyone was wondering, Samantha and Jen already know because I mentioned it, but my favorite line of Nomeo and Juliet is when Featherstone says, you can never pull the wool over these beady eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I was crying laughing so hard. And I think I've said that exact phrase at least 10 times this week so far (laughs) (laughs) wait i don't think we talked about it in the podcast yet though we must also talk about crying because the whole part where featherstone's wife was taken from him in the divorce of his homeowners i was emotionally destroyed. I am glad that Featherstone is resilient. <laughs> it's okay though, because they they just order him a new wife at the end, which is how it works. Right? You know, one wife gets shipped off in a truck and just go online, and here comes a new wife. That really did. <laughs> like, why do me the implications that when these two people met? They each had the one and then they moved in together and they put them together. And then when when the woman like moved out, the wife, she just took her single one back. Like, why not? To, like, you know what I mean? Dude, that was fucked I, it was, up. It was so weird. How are you going to separate the flamingos? That was so weird. <laughs> what is weird wrong with you? <laughs> are you a soulless fucking plastic flamingo owner? that you were going to separate this flamingo from its mate because of the wreckage of your own relationship. My God, I disrespect if both you of those separate, people. If you separate your pink flamingos, you death penalty. You deserve <laughs> Everyone knows that plastic flamingos are herd animals. You can't just have one alone. They need company and companionship. 
irresponsible. Irresponsible. He's very interestingly embodied. His body is plastic. And so he's able to like bounce or cushion people's falls. And his legs are long and spindly. And he's just pinioning wildly around. (laughs) Again, just adding to the thrill of watching this movie, the unwitting thrill, I think. I think the animators knew what they were doing. But I think narratively, the the (laughs) death-defying escapades of these characters are not really fully acknowledged what help me please what are they what gives them consciousness like do they age have have they reproduced can they fuck like what is going on i think that they are just created they are spurned into life by this one man where they both source all their gnomes and you know adoption i think that he i think that romeo just came fully formed and miss blueberry or whatever her name was just adopted him and also all of the gnomes that are unfortunately shaped in certain ways just can't move which is wild to me like the one guy who just fishes all day every day and his poor little ceramic fish just gets fished every day, all day, mm-hmm. until it sinks to the bottom, and then it stays there and it can't move. So I think the I don't have anything else to say. Very sad, tragic. Romeo, Romeo and Juliet is a no. horror story. <laughs> Sadie, you and you and I are of a of a garden patch here. I think <laughs> that based on the lawn flamingos and their fates, that all of the fates of the gnomes are entirely dependent on their human caretakers, for lack of a better word, who don't pay any attention to them, but the people who purchase and place them in their gardens, because that's how Featherstone's love was was taken from him. That's how they have all arrived. We do see that these garden gnomes can obviously survive underwater because they don't have to breathe real air like human beings, but they can also somehow swim back out of the pond and can also blow air when they need to, but can also be held incapacitated by glue placed on their feet. Anyway, I don't think, I think that they can kiss and they can love one another, but I do not think that the garden gnomes can sexually reproduce. I agree. I think that all they can do is couple up and hope that their garden owners will someday be like, oh, you know, this would be a cute little child for this pair and introduces a new one to the garden. Oh my God. That's how I think they reproduce. (laughs) Romeo has a dead dad in this movie right mm-hmm. is, is and Juliet has a dead mom yeah yeah so are you suggesting that they were not the the sexual output of their parents but were rather purchased and then by their owners given a backstory is this like a west world situation where they all have like memories of dead parents that never existed well no i think that the parents existed and had a relationship with the other but i think that that those other gnomes were broken or removed somehow from the garden wait so you're suggesting that the garden owners we're are like, the gods I of have, these poor gnomes. I have this gnome. <laughs> Let me buy a gnome that I think would make a cute, c- 
couple with this gnome. Now let me buy a gnome that I think would make a cute child for them. Now let me take one of the parent gnomes and like discard it. That's yeah. how it worked. Oh my god! I mean, did, did you think anything good about these people from seeing the, this movie? Yeah, they do seem like exactly the kind of sadists that would do that to their own garden gnomes. If they're capable of hurting each other in that way, then yes, they can construct emotional trauma for their gnome families. But I didn't like that the gnomes, and I complained about this loudly to both of you, that the gnomes had to play by Toy Story rules of like never allowing the humans to see them moving. I guess that's just become a part of like film vocabulary now with sentient toy movies. But like, y'all, if I were a garden gnome and I were like potentially going to get run over by a truck, this was <laughs> life or death. And this happens to Nomeo in this movie. I would not give a shit about some human seeing a weird ass gnome running across the street. I am running across that street. That makes me think that it must be some sort of like fey magic type of stuff that they literally cannot move. When a human gaze is there. Because why would they not otherwise? Why is there not gnome liberation, you know? And I did notice also at the part where Nomeo and Tybalt were forced to be frozen together for a moment. They were definitely, what they were doing like a wheelbarrow maneuver where Nomeo, Nomeo and Tybalt were like fighting to the death at this point. And then Nomeo was acting as the wheelbarrow with his feet in Tybalt Gnome's hands. But then Nomeo managed to snap out of it more quickly and move away when the light went back off and the humans weren't watching. And then Tybalt was left still to snap out. So I don't know if it's entirely within their control, you know? Because who who's going to hew to that forever? Like when you're getting about to get run over by a truck, why would you pause? Why would Nomeo be spinning across the freeway instead of running? Yeah, I, I feel like I love this movie, but I will also be thinking about it for the rest of my life. I... <laughs> In the best way possible. <laughs> Sadie, speak to us. Please tell, please explain the mechanics of, yes, of these you, gnomes' bodies and lives. We're going to be tortured. You set us on the Nomeo and Juliet train. You have to free us from it. Why? <laughs> Make if, us understand. Listen, if you're wanting a happy ending, this is not the podcast episode for it. This is not, this is Romeo plus Juliet's <laughs> podcast episode. And so I hate to tell you, but when the, when a gnome falls off of a ledge, it shatters into a million pieces. And then its soul just drifts up and it, and then its soul inhabits another ceramic gnome and then, okay. and then it becomes sentient and that's reincarnation, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. The real <laughs> tragedy of this podcast all along was that we fell in love with Nomeo and Juliet, but failed to understand it. You guys, honestly, I'm worried about them. Now that I have come up with this theory about the humans being their, I mean, effectively their gods who remove or dispose of them when they're shattered instead of gluing them back together. And even watching the end of the movie, I was very glad that the two gardens formed 
an alliance with one another and had a beautiful dancing scene when even somehow glued up Tybalt was able to return. God knows when they picked out his pieces from the other side of that wall. But there was never any reconciliation between those homeowners and they still clearly hate each other. So is the best possible outcome going to be that these garden gnomes are able to interact when the owners are away? Like what is going on? Well, what if one of the owners moves away and takes Juliet or Nomeo along with? I think I think the the thing is is that afterward, I think it's implied that Nomeo and Juliet are going to like move into that abandoned garden and like make a garden of their own. I think the the reason why the two flamingos had a sad ending was because they didn't know that they were going to be taken away until it was too late and they couldn't move because of the fey powers that were trapping them in place. And so he had to just watch her being picked up and thrown in and then they got oh. separated. But that won't happen with <laughs> with Nomeo and Juliet. There'll be clear signs. I would love if that flamingo <laughs> came, came sentient. Like, that's your wife, bro. Like, be- <laughs> become sentient and, like, claw like- your way to sentience <laughs> and stop her. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is like a compulsion where they cannot move because I don't think that that would be a choice at that kind of emotional moment, which again brings this whole podcast right back around to all romantic movies being horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there is something that's just so body horror about Nomeo and Juliet that I love. It's so weird. And I love, I mean, It's wild to talk about both movies simultaneously, because even though they're both from the same source material, they are probably as different as two movies could be. But they're both just so good and so weird and kind of offbeat in their respective genres. And that's why I love them. I think they're great. Are we ready to rate and rank them? How many pink flamingos out of five, y'all? Ooh, ooh, for each. I will (laughs) give Nomeo and Juliet five eternally doomed ceramic fish at the bottom of a pond out of five. (laughs) That fish hurt my heart so much. I worry for that fish more than any of them. I will give it five gay gnome couples, five de facto gay gnome couples because they're literally two male gnomes tethered together who can't leave each other out of five. I wish I could quit you. (laughs) (laughs) That was cute. And I will give Buzz Lerman's Romeo plus Juliet hmm, four fish tanks out of five. A very fishy rating today from me. (laughs) So Romeo and Juliet is the superior film. Paul Rudd's Paris, astronaut suit, very charming. Stephen Merchant's Paris less so i'll say we'll save jen for last because she has the show i'm sure she'll have the big blowout um i give baz lerman's four astronaut suits out of five because i loved it but i'm also once again a hopeless romantic and i need things to have happy endings because i'm such a fragile person emotionally um but otherwise great loved it so much nomeo and juliet six orchids out of five outstanding movie give it the give it the oscar retroactively for 2011 i give nomeo and juliet 4.75 terraferminators out of five 
the extreme lawn mower that threatens to destroy all lives and end because it was just that damn good. I, I really liked it, honestly. I'm invested in the story of those pink flamingos. And even though I was irritated with Featherstone when he arrived and his accent, I wish the best for him. And then I hope he and his new wife thrive forever and that no one knocks them down in their abandoned back lot. Oh, I don't even know how I can rate Boz Lerman's, Ro- excuse me, not Romeo plus Juliet, Boz Lerman's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. I give it, hmm, I give it five Mercutio party entrances on the stairs to the disco song out of five because, you know, I saw it young and I stand by it. I liked your Terra Firminator impression a lot. (laughs) 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 Meow. Or not really in this case for Romeo plus Juliet, but go on. (laughs) Or dead. However, (laughs) we have a great new review on Apple Podcasts from somebody who called our podcast entertaining, engaging, and fun. And whoever you are, we appreciate that so much. And let's see, what else? What other viewer feedback do we have? Oh, we didn't get to say this on last week's because we our internet was fucky. However, Justin did some research and learned that on our Groundhog Day episode, when Sadie said that she felt that she would be able to learn to ice sculpt within six months, and Samantha and I were extremely worried about her, and Sadie said, quote, I sculptors come at me. Well, this listener looked up some eye sculpting courses and found out that the total education hours for a beginning eye sculpture course would be 190, which according to Google comes out to approximately eight days if you spent all 24 hours of those eight days ice sculpting constantly. Which you know he did. (laughs) I'm vindicated. I'm validated. I don't think you can sculpt Andy McDowell in 190 hours. You you need at least 3,000 hours of ice sculpting to attempt Andy McDowell. It wasn't a good attempt. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, this supports an under 10 years theory. Sadie's could be much closer to two years. I mean, maybe even if he were incredibly motivated within the six months she originally suggested. We don't know. But thank you, Justin, for that feedback. He'd be moving and shaking if it were six months. Let's see. Oh, we ran a Twitter poll on which of us co-hosts has the most infectious rom-com laugh. And overwhelmingly, it was obviously Sadie. Stop it. Stop it. Hold the applause. Sadie, Hold the laugh applause. again. Samantha, say something to make her laugh. <laughs> Sadie, the only option for good reason. Oh, yes, yeah. Well... I mean, we're all rom-com heroines, but... I like that we run Twitter polls 
where we only give people one option, like our Twitter <laughs> poll about w- w- what the best Romeo and Juliet adaptation was, and you could only pick Romeo and Juliet. It shows that we love interaction, but also total control. <laughs> <laughs> Harkens back to us all being the like teacher's pet constantly raising the hand in the classroom. <laughs> we like to give you the illusion that you have some input or sway, but in reality, <laughs> conform to our opinions <laughs> or get out. Bow to us or do not speak to us, mortals. <clears throat> now, that said, oh, this whole episode we did this week was based on a suggestion of Boz Lerman's Romeo plus Juliet in the first week, and we have now gotten around to it. And rest assured, all of you who have made suggestions before, you're on our list. And now that said, Andrew, who we have now mostly forgiven for making us watch, forcing us, in fact, via Twitter suggestion, to watch the alternative ending to The Ugly Truth, which was traumatizing for us all. Andrew, you're forgiven now. Anyway. I'm sure he's very relieved. (laughs) I'm sure he's been waiting on bated breath for us to bless him with our forgiveness. Good thing, because now he has it. I don't know if he will have it once we watch his suggestion of Run For Your Wife, 2012, which Samantha put a note on, the Wikipedia summary is wild. Just the first sentence, because I'll (laughs) save the rest of it for when we actually do this, because I can tell this will be one that we actually do one day. (laughs) The story of London cab driver John Smith with two wives, two lives, and a very precise schedule for juggling them both, with one wife at home in Stockwell and another at home in Finsbury. This is a secret family rom-com caper. Madness. Absolute madness. Oh, wow. Andrew, my face right now. Anyway, I look forward to this. And also Scott Pilgrim and all of our other suggestions that I remember that one off the top of my head. But anyway, we love you listeners. Did that sound sarcastic, guys? Because it didn't mean it that way. <laughs> we Let love me you so We love much. you listeners! <laughs> <laughs> we love that you listen to this podcast. We don't think you're pathetic at all for spending a an hour listening to us talk about Nomeo and Juliet. Also, watch Nomeo and Juliet because that was a good movie. Jesus. <laughs> okay, go listen to us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a very appreciated five star review. Or if you would like to leave us less than that, how about not listen to us at all? And Samantha, I don't know the other platforms. <laughs> We're we're everywhere. And I like that that person who left us the review said, can't wait to see what comes next. And what came next was Nomeo and Juliet. You're welcome. (laughs) Bet you didn't see that one coming. I just had coal. Bread. I'm about to kiss. The Declaration of Independence. It's the gray. This moment of my life. Terror Terminator. Nachos. Was it Noah? Yeah. <laughs>